Welcome to IndieWire's Very Good Television Podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizzled on the, on the Twitters. And I'm Ben Travers at Ben T. Travers on the Twitters. And happy Monday. It's Monday, the most glorious time of the year, a couple of times a year, when all of the shows come back all at once. Oh, yeah. We are, well, we even haven't even had the next one. We've still got The Walking Dead next yes. Sunday. So that Monday we'll have even more of all of the shows. Plus, uh, yeah, Fargo, Fargo's Monday nights as well. So we're going to be up to five or six weekly shows on, on our personal docket, not just counting the stuff that we watch. So exciting times, busy times for the big tele for the premium television fan. Yeah, I mean, there's really just so much to talk about, and I mean, so many different areas of interest and and and, and television shows in general, but also like the topics that come up from uh, you know from the from the press tours surrounding those television shows, and I mean, there's just a there's just a ton to dig into. So many options for us on on this this week's podcast. <laughs> just kidding. We're only going to talk about the leftovers. Yeah, we are. Oh my God, the leftovers is here. It's finally out, and everyone's seen it. Every single person. Yeah, I wonder how many people watched. I still don't have figures yet, and I'm I'm itching. I'm getting the I'm getting the itch. I am sure plenty of people, a million and a half people. Well, it's gonna be yeah. It'll it should be really interesting to see kind of what the live numbers look like, considering how uh, well I guess the popular word these days is divisive season one was. Um, but given you know the the kind of the time that's taken place between now and then and, and how many people seem to watch on HBO Go, HBO Now, you know, catch up in various different ways before season two, you know, obviously the hope is that that leads to a boost in viewership, but, you know, there's just probably just as many people who gave up after finishing as, you know, wanted to keep watching, so it should be interesting to see kind of where that conversation leads uh, in terms of numbers. Well, I mean, and a lot, you know, everyone, a, a lot of the coverage of it leading prior to the show show's premiere, including your own review, uh, emphasized how, A, the show is taking a different path, and B, the path was really exciting. So that could really help in terms of boosting its, boosting its performance. Yeah, it's something to me that's, that's an extremely interesting gamble because they seem to be uh, and this goes this speaks to your interview with Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada as well as you know a few others that are out there but they seem to be speaking to the fact that yes this is definitely a new direction yes we've made adjustments but this is still our show this is still the leftovers the tone will be very similar the message the questions all of that is very similar and i mean that first episode with uh, the Murphys, you know, being the focus of, of the events, I mean, that, that really is like the next chapter in the book that, that doesn't exist. But, I mean, it feels very much, very similar to, to what we've gone through before, just with a new group of characters. No, totally. And I, yeah, I respect that, honestly. Like, I, I don't think I would be, I would be as intrigued by The Leftovers if they had decided, really decided, like, oh, yeah, we're too depressing. we got to make all these changes in order to be less depressing. Like, that's not interesting. Yeah, and it's it would be a little bit of a slap in the face to those of us who really loved that first season. I mean, you don't want to hear them start apologizing for something that you are in love with. I mean, it's one of those kind of testy waters where even with more widely regarded, you know, bad or, or negatively reviewed content – when you hear stars or the creators apologizing for that, there's still those fans of it out there, and you don't you don't really want to see that, even if maybe it's the consensus or or whatever. And that's far from the case with the leftovers. 
Um, but you know, speaking to what you said, where they're they're not going in the other direction, where all of a sudden this is happy, happy, joy, joy. That new opening credit sequence sure was a twist. Um, I laughed out loud. I'm, I, 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 I don't mean I like I, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just was so blown away by how different it was. Um, I, I didn't even really anticipate how different it was going to be. I literally uh, loaded it up like. Okay, let's see what happens. Especially because uh, when they originally sent out the review copies, um, they didn't have the original, the, the new opening credit sequence in it. Instead, they, I think for one episode, they just played that uh, that really depressing song from the first ep- from the pilot episode over Black. And then yeah. I think they also had me- they also had the original the, the season one theme music playing, uh, yeah. and. Nothing could be more different than the season two theme music. <laughs> yeah, and they've still got uh, they still got Max Richter on to do the score. So like the stuff within the show is so similar that when you watch those review copies without the new opening, it definitely like adding in that opening has an effect on kind of the interpret not necessarily the interpretation of the episodes or the meaning behind them but the feeling of the show in general and kind of that attitude adjustment for season two. Well, one of the most interesting things I ever, one of the first really interesting things I ever heard about television uh, was something I, a, a professor of mine said in a class once, which is the idea that really, if you want to understand a TV show, looking at the opening credits is not a bad way to go. Like in theory, theoretically there should be at least a thematic connection between the opening credits and the you know, final and the actual show in terms of execution, in terms of meaning. And yeah, yeah, I don't know what to make of this leftover change. <laughs> you know, I think I think it'll be more telling kind of the farther we get down the line with season two. When I first watched it, I had the same reaction. Well, I don't know if I had the same reaction you did, but I had the same literal reaction you did where I laughed out loud because it just made me really happy. It felt to me just instinctually kind of like an F you to the haters. Like we, we aren't going to do this. We're not going to go down this road where everything is, you know, just, you know, as, as pleasant and cheery and folksy as this background music makes it sound. We're still going to dwell on this kind of reminder of what, you know, what suffering is and what, what, what is happening in this universe. We're not going to change things up just because so many people mentioned it, whether it was in reverence or, you know, complaints, but I, I I just loved it. It felt like something the GR would have made to me, and and I think that interpretation is going to change as we go along with the with the season. Mm-hmm. But right off the bat, especially in in direct contrast to that freaking opening with the cave woman, who yeah, oh <laughs> cave woman. I mean, God, yeah. Uh, which just, it, uh, should, it should be worth noting that I think we're going to get spoilery about episode one. Uh, in this in this podcast, so if you are super sensitive to knowing that there's a cave woman in episode one, for example, uh, heads up. Yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot that happened in that first episode that's spoilery outside of the structuring of it. Yeah, that that cave woman aspect, which was such such a tough and different way to start the season. I mean, I, I again, it, it fit very well for me, especially the transition they made at the very end of it. And again, it, it stuck with that kind of tonal consistency of raising questions that 
you don't necessarily know the answer to. Like, is that what is the meaning behind what happened to this woman? What is the meaning of the bird that she was watching above her? What was the meaning of, of you know, kind of the plight of this baby? Was it for the better or was it for the worse? Like, is this a tragedy or is this the start of something good? I mean, you really have a lot of questions going in right after that. And then the smooth transition over just that pan to, you know, present day people jumping into the the lake that then is, you know, gone by the end of the episode. I mean, it it, it, it worked very, very well. But man, it's got it's got some balls on it. Yeah. I think the thing that really excites me, uh, speaking of things that have changed about season two versus season one, include the fact that, you know, we're talking, you know, we've we've already touched on it briefly, but we've introduced, you know, we we start the season by introducing a new family. And this is a trend that's going to continue throughout the entire season, just for the record. Uh, Most of the episodes are going to follow the model that they established briefly in season one with breakout standout episodes featuring focusing on specific characters. Uh, which I yeah. which I couldn't be happier about. I I have mixed emotions about it, if only because one of my favorite things about the first season was kind of how they integrated the stories together, how they cut them together to form an episode, and how you might get those little samplings, like you get even in this, like you got a little sampling of kind of where the Garveys were at near the end of the episode when they show up into their new house and they come over for the barbecue, but to to combine that with more of the uh, the entire universe of the show, like in the in past seasons, where you'd get a little bit of each character, and then you'd have those breakaway episodes where they'd expand on one very important person. And I think maybe my cautiousness is that those episodes only batted about fifty fifty for me. I really liked the 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 se- episode three, season one episode where uh, it was all about the Reverend, all about Matt, um, but uh, it didn't compare to me in in. To, to Nora's episode. Like, Nora's episode was one where I just could watch it again and again for endless amounts of time. The Matt one seemed more like, okay, we're going to do this, but let's move past it now. And I, I, so I'm, I'm a little more worried about what's happening in season two in that sense. I'm not, you know, jumping ship or saying there's anything wrong with it necessarily. But You're not daring to criticize the, line, the leftovers. No, no, I wouldn't do that. I would never, I would yes. never do that. Sorry. Uh, but how far they go down the line with it will be curious to me. So. Well, I think uh, what you are completely correct in that. I, 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 there is definitely the potential for this structure to leave the show feeling really disjointed. Uh, certainly, the fact that you know things happen in episode one of the show that Ben and Ben and I have both seen all the first three episodes, and I believe you've, you've seen all three. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And the thing, of course, is that. We have seen all three episodes, but that only takes us so very far. We've only basically, because all three episodes are focusing on specific characters and are actually relatively disconnected, with a few exceptions. Yeah, and yeah, there's those, and there's. What we're saying is we don't have any more answers is, than you guys do. Right, and, and and without spoiling anything about what's to come, what's interesting about them is there are those moments, just like there's always been, where you see something in a different light, where you've seen a scene before. And then they show it again from another perspective, and that kind of changes things. And I, I, think, I think kind of stepping back from just the, the specific of this show and seeing it more as a, maybe a broader trend kind of thing, it, I mean, they've, I've heard Lindelof and Prada discuss this in the terms of anthology series and, and in, in, in terms of a show like The Wire, which kind of you know, restarted stories or, or told a story from a different perspective but kept its, its 
tone and 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 kind of its sense of self the same. Um, and it, it you know I, actually there was another show last night that just premiered which you reviewed Liz the affair did a little bit something like that as well where they interjected a new voice into the conversation. Yeah, I think I think you know it, we're, what we're seeing is a continual the continual ability for showrunners to be innovative and really try new things with their formats and not be beholden to what's come before. You know, it's a very it's a very different world from like say the Law and Order days when, you know, you had your first half of the episode that was about the law, second half of the episode that was about the order. Um <laughs> Nowadays, you are allowed to be more than law and order. Um, but the thing that bringing up the affair is really interesting, though, because half the point of that show is the fact that there you're seeing like two sides, two two sides of a conversation, two different memories of a, an event, but neither of them are given the. Neither of them are given um, authorial truth, which I is something the leftovers doesn't play with. Like. No, yeah, no, not not quite the same way, and and that's one of the issues that we've discussed, and you actually laid out very well in in that episode review of the affair, in the sense of kind of where that truth is coming and how it's going to affect the show, and whether or not it actually ever will, which I guess could kind of relate back to what truths will be told to us about the leftovers, what will we learn? We know we're not going to learn where these people went or why they left or you know the cause of of the departure departure. But there's other things that we do want to know and maybe we expect to find out more about, especially after this first episode, and kind of what people are decided to do with those truths is is becoming a defining characteristic for me about whether or not the show actually works out. It, for me, it would have been like if Mad Men hadn't given me some sort of answer to what Don Draper needed, like what he needed to feel satisfied what he had to do, what connection he had to make, what he had to discover. If they would have just never been able to find it, it wouldn't have felt whole to me. And and I feel like that's what we're kind of approaching with some of these other shows that are that are very into exploring the questions and the effects, um, but maybe don't have a solid answer for us at the end of it. Yeah, I think yeah, the affair is definitely in tricky territory with that, especially because uh, I actually talked to Sarah Treem about the co-creator of the show about this, and you know, it's kind of like the kind of digging into the question of what is what is what do we what can we trust on screen and she did say that scenes featuring uh featuring if you watch season one i can just it's not a huge spoiler if you didn't watch season one it's not a huge spoiler to say there's a detective floating around the show around the events of the show and scenes featuring the detective are general have just are kind of neutral in terms of their their perspective like but those are the only scenes that kind of exists outside of this complicated, uh, faulty memory take on reality they've built. Yeah, and what was interesting about that about that choice too was the 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 inclusion of some sort of going back to Law and Order, some sort of orderly force, some sort of law presence in that scene to break up the different versions. To me, indicated that there was going to be an objective party who ruled for us and said this is what happened. And maybe there would still be grays, but we'd still get some sort of answer in more specifics of who was right and who was wrong, or even just you know like what was a lie and what was a truth. Like I, I mean, it's something that I'm really craving from that show. And they've started off on a very interesting path for season two, so I'll, I'll keep up with it. But um, I'm much more skeptical of that than I am of the leftovers. I feel like they're like Lindelof and Prada are very aware of the answers that they need to provide. And the only thing that scares me is kind of 
they are more comfortable. And some of the stuff they've said, they seem more comfortable if the show doesn't get picked up for a season three or if it hadn't have been picked up for season two, which wasn't that much of a risk apparently. But if this, if it does end rather abruptly, then they've structured it so that they feel comfortable with the answers that are given. But had it ended after last season, I would not have felt as satisfied. I, I still need some answers. So I, I'm, I feel like they're going to try to give those to us. But um, if they're not allowed to finish, I guess maybe it won't be as satisfying as I'm hoping. Well, it's worth pointing out that if you didn't happen to get, get all the way through my uh, my Tom Parada, uh, Damon Lindelof interview, because that thing got long on me. But one thing they very specifically say is they have, they have nothing planned for season three right now. They don't know if they have a season three and they're not writing anything. They, or they, they haven't started planning for it in advance of finishing season two, which is actually really interesting because that is not something I'm used to hearing from creators. A lot of times we ask about what have you got planned for next season? And they usually say, they won't say what they have planned, but they will say, oh yeah, we've got some ideas. Um, and nope, uh, Parada and Dayton Lindelof are like, we're just going to make this season and we'll figure out if we want to do a third one later on. Yeah, that's very comforting to me as someone who craves closure, especially in television when the stories are so much longer and the endings are, are you know sometimes harder to pinpoint, like when or how they'll come about. Um, so I feel great. I love that they're structuring seasons in the sense of, you know, this is a story in, unto itself. There's definitely elements being drawn in from the past. And, you know, there's, there's always going to be, you know, these lives are always going to continue on in the future, but we're not planning for that. We're going to settle things as they are right now. I guess to be specific about it, I just really need to know if Kevin is crazy. <laughs> I, I just, it's one of those things where I understand the other side of it, but I almost just wholly reject it because I, I I feel like he's been confronted with too many things and now he's very specifically in this in this second season, he's been put in a situation that demands explanation. It demands more than just uh more than just a passive step back like, oh, this could happen to anybody because it cannot. So we'll see kind of where they go with it. Well Ben, I think I think that actually might be something you should prepare yourself for being disappointed by because I you know Another thing I've heard is that, you know, they don't want to play it straight. They don't want to have a firm definition about Kevin's Kevin's sanity or lack thereof. Uh, they want it to play. They want it to have a little ambiguity to it. In fact, I want to just mention you, you, you literally just said that the end of season one would not have been satisfying to you. So do, with that said, like, do you still have that faith in season two having some real closure to it? Well, that's what I'm. That's what I mentioned earlier. That's what I'm primarily concerned about. I feel like it'll have a very strong closure for this specific story that it started, especially in regards to Miracle and the Murphys. I'm a little more concerned about, again, Kevin and even Nora, kind of where they're going to end up. Like that family as a whole that's been completely split apart, uh, has has completely departed from one another. Where they end up is actually very important. It's not just something. It, it, it doesn't feel like something that they've just been set on a path where they can wander about and do whatever they feel like and they don't have to have some sort of resolution. I mean, there's, there's, to me, there has to be a resolution. And to me, I understand what you're saying, and I've heard this before. I've, I've definitely heard, I've read plenty of interviews, and, and Lindelof and Prada have been very specific that they're not that interested in providing hard and fast answers. But the key point where they always draw the line is that they say they're not going to give hard and fast answers in regards to the departure. 
but they have not spoken specifically to the other questions that have arisen about kind of the the, the strange events uh, going on post the departure. Like those those kind of things, especially this, some of the stuff they introduced in season two, it feels almost like an, like an addition. And even that means to me, like, okay, if they're going to add in even more questions regarding this, then they're going to have to come up with some answers too. So I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not letting off the hook um, whether they say it or not. If they can come up with a way in the end to satisfy both parties, then by all means, go for it. But again, it just kind of comes down to trust right now. And, and right now I do. I do trust them. I kind of loved uh, something, something that Lindelof said, which was um, ten, you know, 20 years from now when people are watching the show, there's not going to be a warning label on it saying spoiler alert, bad things happen to dogs and you will never know what happened to the people, which is, ki- <laughs> which is kind of hilarious to me. I kind of love that. I kind of love the idea of having that yeah, label, that honestly. Was, yeah. It's, it's almost fairly necessary considering that first episode. I, that was one of the things that immediately hooked me on the show was that how, I mean, obviously how well it was told and, and the narrative in general and the questions that brought up, but the fact that they had the balls to go through with an opening like that where there's, you know, mass killings of dogs, like, that's that's insane. Like, that's literally a, a, a TV movie no-no. Like, you just don't kill animals. That's not something you're allowed to do. And they were like, nope, we're going to do it. We're not allowed to do this other stuff, too. There's no rules about that, but this is us saying we're taking this on. I literally know half a dozen people who don't watch The Leftovers because they hurt dogs. Oh, yeah. Oh, um. absolutely. Yeah. But if, it's funny how much dog violence there is in TV. Like, it's like the first thing that happens in House of Cards season one is that a bad thing happens to a dog. Yeah, but at least they frame that in a way of, and I think Kevin Spacey's talked about this, they frame that in a way of he was putting the dog out of his misery rather than just, you know, killing the dog. So yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a, for that, it's more of a unique blend of, of well, he's, he's trying to do the right thing. And we can all identify with doing the right thing, even though it's the hard thing to do. But he's also the anti-hero, so you don't know exactly where his motivations lie. Whereas The Leftovers, it's more like, is this guy just nuts? We have no idea what's happening. We have no idea who to trust. And there's possibly an imaginary figure and the chief of police murdering the dogs of Mapleton. So it's an interesting decision. So, Ben, tell me about what, you know, Without, without, without really spoiling anything, tell me about what you're most excited about looking forward at season two. Uh, I think I'm still, I think I'm still most excited just by Nora's character, independent of everybody else. From what, without getting spoilerly about what's to come in the next episode, I feel like they've kept her in a very important place, and they've put a lot of emphasis on that letter that she wrote at the end of season one. And then, you know, obviously finding the baby and then like kind of her motivations and what she's going to do. And she's not going to slip into the background at all. She's very much at the forefront of the show. And I love Carrie Coon as Nora. I think that's incredibly uh, like just a perfect match between character and actress and the way that they seem to be writing her and kind of her attitude in general. You know, I mean, The Leftovers very much deals with people's emotional condition on an episode by episode basis like how they're feeling matters so much to the show itself and how Nora like uh, presents herself and like uh, enters into conflict and the decision she makes in regards to uh, you know issues that that spring up 
it's very interesting and i think like some i feel like something big is coming down the line for her and that that'll be very fun to watch yeah um i i couldn't agree more uh i think in general i'm i i i really am excited for how much bigger the world feels now than it did in season one season one i felt had not wasn't claustrophobic but it felt very it it felt somewhat limited to the town and even with uh, scenes that take place outside it uh, now there's like a whole new expansion of the universe. There's new weird, like there's uh, some weird bureaucratic stuff that comes up in the next episode uh, without no spoilers, but weird bureaucratic stuff comes up in the next episode and it is hinted at this week with the, uh, you know, with the, uh, uh, gosh, wristbands that they're asked to wear. Yeah, like all right. of that, all of that really intrigues me. And I love, I love the th- level of detail that they put into it. Um, yeah, the wor- the world building of this show in general. I mean, what prodded it with the book, you know, obviously was was the start of it, and now it's a continuation of that, and it's an expansion of that, which is, I mean, that's a great that's a great point to make. It's very exciting to see how you know not only the specific people are dealing with with what's happened, but how as a society we're trying to move on from that. So. Yeah. It's yeah. all it's all it's all the stuff that you know people nerd out about in like Star Trek and uh, in science fiction in general, but it's applied to this show that has supernatural elements, but is super grounded, which yeah. is always a really exciting combination for me. Yeah, there was there was something in your interview too that that Lindelof touched upon, which uh, which to me speaks to kind of the the need for resolution to some degree for for where this season's going to go as well as the series as a whole. Um, and he said that this is a show about a family, so the primary antagonist of that show should be a force that doesn't believe in the idea of family. And this is him speaking in regards to kind of how the guilty remnant fits into things. And the guilty remnant is still very much a part of this season in a few different ways. So I, I, I'm interested in where those, where that idea is going to land. The idea of family in this universe, the importance of it, the battle between the people who cling to it and the people who, you know, don't believe in it at all anymore, where that resolution lies, I think is the key to finding satisfaction for, for all viewers involved. Yeah. I think it's really telling that not only is the first episode of this season about, about this brand new family that we've met, but we're also seeing how, how quickly Nora and Kevin have rushed into creating a new family unit, essentially out of, out of, remnants no pun intended of their past, <laughs> of their previous lives and there's there's a there's a complex there's there's such there's it, it feels almost like that scenario almost feels like a loaded gun at this point like it could go off in a really really terrible direction oh yeah and and that's the beauty of it and again like like what you said with introducing this new family into the mix and kind of immediately presenting you know the the patriarchs of the family as opposites of one another. I mean, yeah, sure. This uh, uh, was it, Michael? No, what's his name? Um, Kevin Carroll plays uh, Mister Murphy, whose first name is just escaping me for some reason right now. Uh, it, it's something simple like John, mm-hmm. but um, but presenting him as an ex-con for a guy who's the ex-chief of police. I mean, sure, that's that's its own thing. Obviously, those two aren't going to get along in in every sense of the word. But as soon as he denied a beer that was offered to him from Kevin, you knew these guys weren't going to be neighborly friends. There's going to be some conflict here. And it's very exciting to see 
how that conflict is going to stir up considering this town is supposed to be the salvation. This is supposed to be where everything is fine and everything is normal. And the family that's representing that town is obviously not that they are doing some very bad things. And, uh, it's directly related to, to the events that have happened outside of the town, so to speak. So, well, so yeah, I, they've, they've definitely loaded a powder keg. I love, I love what you just said about, about, about the patriarchs being such opposites. And I think one, like to go a little broader with it, I think what's really interesting about the dynamic between them is Kevin is nothing but a big giant wad of self-doubt and Mr. Murphy, whose name I'm also blanking on, meanwhile, is the opposite. Like I've, he's very, you know, whatever he's doing to, to within this, within this town, he has complete faith in his actions. And I think that's a great character dynamic to set up. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. His his power has corrupted him to some degree, whereas uh, Kevin was almost he almost just he doubted himself too much with the power that he was given. So, uh, and and now he doesn't really have that anymore. But yeah, you're right. And, and his name is John. Just for the record, I had it pulled up here, so I double checked it. But yeah, uh, right. Kevin Carroll plays John. So, oh man, lots. God, we could just do this every week. Should we just make this the leftovers <laughs> podcast? Like just every week, we'll very we'll good talk leftovers podcast. Yeah, I thought it went well. Yeah, that was fun. I mean, certainly we aren't going to stop talking about the leftovers. I'm sure it'll. <laughs> I'm sure the leftovers will come up again. Yeah, just like all of my friends keep telling me, it's like how I don't know how you figured out a way to make this about the leftovers, but you did it again. Yeah, you have a special. It's a special talent then that someday I think will get you pretty far in life. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, yes. I, I'm definitely not peaking with it right now. Definitely not. You are not peak Ben. You are not, we are not peak leftovers yet. Uh, oh boy. But beyond the leftovers, Ben, uh, I, I do have to ask you, what was the best thing you watched last week? Uh, the best thing I watched last week is something that comes out this Friday on Amazon, and it's uh, a new show called Red Oaks, which actually has a lot of talent behind the camera. Um, Steve, uh, Steven Soderbergh is an executive producer. David Gordon Green directed the first two episodes. Um, it's got uh, Paul Reiser as kind of a supporting player, but the main cast consists of you know uh, maybe some faces you've seen before, but a lot of a lot of newcomers. And it's just a simple story about well, it's not a simple story, but it is a story about um, a, a, a country club set uh, during the 1980s, uh, where a kid who is I believe a freshman in college and trying to figure out uh, kind of a way to get to move into the city and save up some money. He's working as a tennis pro at this country club and he kind of, you know, interacts with all the people um, from all the different spectrums of the world, uh, you know, financially speaking or economically speaking. And uh, it's just, it's very funny. Like it's a, it's a very smart comedy. Um, It's been, it's been kind of created with, with that knowledge of its setting and, and kind of the awareness of where that puts it on, uh, like an entertainment spectrum. There's obviously been a lot of movies made about the eighties and movies made about country clubs and kind of like there's an immediate Caddyshack vibe that you want to apply to this thing, but it's a very different, well, it's not very different, but it's a, it's a different enough uh, tone to it and a, a very different goal than that movie had. Um, and it's fun. It's just, it's a lot of fun. It's very smart, great acting all around. So I'm, I'm very curious to see where it goes uh, throughout the whole first season. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I've had I've been meaning to check it out, if only because I have like bookmarked in my brain somewhere that there's a supporting character who has potential to be like a real breakout star for the season. 
Um, I'm thinking of his coworker whose name I don't know, and but has a wacky zany energy to him. Oh wait, the te- wait the tennis pro or I think so, the, yeah. uh, the valet. Uh, which one is the one with the girls? Oh, it's the tennis pro. Yeah. Okay, the tennis pro. Do you do you remember his? <laughs> I I do not. I I'll definitely put it in the show notes because he's he is worth mentioning. I remember there's, he was. There's, some, there's a number of people who could really break out from this. Yeah, I remember him being. I remember that 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 actor being really funny at TCAs. So, uh, oh, that's, nice. That's yeah. why I, I I felt like shouting out about it. Yeah, he's he's very well cast, and he knows exactly what he's doing with it. He he kind of owns it from from the second he comes on screen. But uh, but yeah, Liz, what about you? What was the best thing you watched last week? Well, I have a kind of I have I have a, I have a specific answer, but I also have to say, uh, last week I finally upgraded my Hulu Plus subscription to commercial free, and it, mm. holy crap, it's a game changer. I literally have written down in my notes for this podcast everything on Hulu for my best thing because it's just it – t- it takes all the TV that normally I'm used to watching with commercials and it makes it like watching Netflix. So it's like I'm catching up on The Daily Show, Hulu Plus. Uh, I'm watching like Quantico, you know, catching up with Quantico, that ABC drama, no commercials. They're, and even like the they're like – maybe a half dozen shows that do have still have like due to streaming deals. Like they do have to have uh, commercial breaks, but they have one commercial at the beginning and one commercial at the end. And otherwise no more commercials. It's, it's like the best investment you can make in yourself. If you care way too much about television, uh, Hulu plus uh, that extra four bucks a month is totally worth it. And on a completely unrelated note, next week we're going to have a sponsor and you might be able to guess who it is. Den is joking actually. Yeah, I'm just kidding. We don't have sponsors. Yeah. But yeah, no, we I think you're right. There's there's so many levels of just kind of where of how many versions of Hulu you can subscribe to. But um but yeah, I I, I couldn't agree with you more or less that once you kind of break into Hulu and access it and kind of get used to whatever format that you're able to engage with, uh, it really comes to life in a, in a great way. And I think we don't talk in, like the depth of its catalog is really it's easy to underestimate. But Dan, like especially if you're a British television fan at all, like you know, start exploring what they have available in terms of dramas from the last twenty years or so. You're gonna be in, amazed by what you've what what's available there. Uh, yeah, and a quick extra note too. I'm I'm. I think we've mentioned it at least with one of these shows before, but I'm now definitely invested in at least three Hulu original series as well, which is uh, um, Difficult People, which is the best. Uh, The Mindy Project, which is just a continuation of something that I enjoyed kind of passively. And then their new one, Casual, which is is just something I kind of want to see where it goes. But it was, they've all done enough for me to be like, oh, this is such a great bonus in addition to the, you know, like you just mentioned, the depth of catalog that they've got with them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, a lot of times I'm using Hulu for network stuff that I somehow forget to DVR. But yeah, the original con- the Difficult People was amazing. And I'm really excited to see. Yeah. It seems they they seem to be finding their groove in terms of funding and producing original content. I'm excited to see that trend continue. Uh, Absolutely. I'm also going to do a quick shout out to the show uh, Dark Matter, which I checked out this weekend uh, on the recommendation of my brother. And it's a it's a. It's a tiny little Canadian sci-fi show. Six strangers wake up on a spaceship without any memory of who they are. And then it's a slow pilot. There's a lot of 
random elements kind of thrown into the mix and a lot of people just kind of standing around a spaceship and talking at each other. But the, the ending of it is fantastic and it's a great twist that makes me want to keep watching more episodes. Nice. Very nice. Good pick. Thank you. So Ben, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Oh, I think uh, I don't think we need to spend too much time on it because I think we'll be spending plenty of time on it in the future. I am very much looking forward to uh, Fargo starting in oh, a week from Oh, yeah. Today. Um, oh, man. I, oof, that first season, you know, uh, with all the reports I've heard of, of kind of the continued excellence of at least the first episode in season two, I, I mean, it's just hard not to get amped up. I, I still, because of the battle between True Detective and Fargo that existed in a lot of awards races as well as kind of amongst critics, I'm still slightly cautious, just of getting a little bit burnt by True Detective Season 2, but uh, it doesn't seem that I need to be cautious, which also makes me want to be more cautious, but really I'm just going to get excited. So, Well, I think yeah. I think the thing, the things to take to heart, the things to take comfort in are that uh, unlike True Detective Season 2, uh, the core creative team is still involved, including, you know, I believe a lot of people are pointing to Kerry Fuku- Fukunama. I, oh God, why can I never say his last name? Fukunaga, but yeah, you got Fuganaga. it. Fukunaga. Uh, Kerry Fuganaga, Fukunaga's departure from Season 2 being a major factor in why that season kind of fell apart. Um, Fargo doesn't have that. Fargo is also, I think, trying... Tonally, it's tonally shifted slightly. It's trying a couple of new things, and that makes it really exciting. Like because you know you're not watching people do the same thing over and over again. They really want it to be a new season, a new story, and a new a new mo- a, a new uh, a new a, a new quest, if you will. <laughs> I'm sure, and I'm sure it will be an equally addictive quest to last year, if if only for the cast, because. Frankly, the inclusion of Ted Danson and Kristen or Kirsten Dunst, I mean, that's enough. And there's so many more people to be excited about, but oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's enough. Kristen Malati, she's adorable. Jesse Plemons. Oh no, I, also I hear adorable. you. Hey, Patrick Wilson and yeah. Jesse Plemons, yeah. Friday Night Lights, can't go wrong. Can't but, go uh, wrong. But yeah, we'll definitely be talking more about Fargo pretty soon. So Liz, what uh, what's the next thing you're looking forward to seeing? I am looking forward to sitting down with Manhattan. Uh which is WGN America's uh, little drama that tries really hard and actually is really a really interesting period piece that actually has, I said actually twice just then, sorry about that, but it's it's got a lot of, it's always had a lot of potential and it's a beautifully made show. So I'm really interested to see how season two, how, how season two takes what they set up in season one and expands upon it because it's not a, it's not a, it's a show that definitely takes chances and really like throws twists around. And that's always been really, that's always a valuable thing in your television programming. Uh, so I'm looking I'll forward be interested to, that. to see how that one does. I'll be interested to see how that one does too, in regards to ratings, just because it got a little bit, it seemed to get a little bit passed over in its first season, despite, despite really good reviews. And then it seems to have also made a lot of efforts to get seen since then, like in the break between season one and season two, uh, I'm pretty sure it went on Hulu. I'm pretty sure they've made like some episodes available on on a few other platforms. Um, they they definitely seem to be trying to expand the reach of the show because, you know, it seems to be very deserving of of that of that uh, attention. Yeah, it's definitely not boring. You cannot say that about you cannot say that about <laughs> always Manhattan. good. They blow things up. It's great. Always. Yeah, that's that's all you really look for. Yes. Um. So. 
That's about all we've got for you this week. Uh, as always, you can go to IndieWire.com when you're not listening to this podcast and check out everything we're writing about film. Not, we're not writing about film. We're writing about television. But we've got features, interviews, reviews, etc. to wet the palate, so to speak. And if you do care about film, then we've got some great podcasts for you to listen to, including, uh, first and foremost, the IndieWire Screen Talk podcast with Eric Cohn and Ann Thompson, which, as we've mentioned numerous times before, they are really into it right now. It is the heat of award season. We're getting all the future Oscar contenders debuting at various festivals right now. Uh, I know Bridge of Spies just came out last night. There's, they're definitely going to have some conversation about that, the new Spielberg movie. Um, but you know, in addition to that, we've got Indie, IndieWire Influencers Podcast with Editor-in-Chief Dana Harris. Uh, she's always talking to just the cutting-edge people, maybe who aren't even in the the like overwhelming conversation. She may not be talking to a Tom Hanks, but she's talking to the person who really matters in the indie independent film community as well as television. She kind of crosses the board. So that's a fascinating thing that you just got to check out. Yeah. And uh, let's see. You can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers on Twitter. And you can find Liz Lit on Twitter at uh, – oh, no, wait. I did that backwards. You can find Liz on Twitter at Liz Lit with an I and an E. There you go. You did it, Ben. You, you got it oh, eventually. It's so hard. I yeah. know. It's. I mean, it's I just Monday. call you Lizlet so often. So yeah, it's it's all the time that happens. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a little odd. A um, little bit. A little bit. But the most important thing is, you guys, keep watching television. <laughs>